Welcome to episode 16 of the Anxious Poets podcast. I'm Adrian Scott. I am the Anxious Poet. Well, 2020, what a year this has been. Plenty of anxiety, plenty of uncertainty and other things too. But now we're in Advent, that time of hoping and waiting, of wounds and stories. Welcome then to the Anxious Poets podcast. Have you ever been plunged under the surface of your conscious life and found yourself all at sea? Welcome to the Anxious Poets podcast with Adrian Scott, the Anxious Poet. Reworking the territory of the past, exposing that the presence in loss is the impudent sprouting of a new life. There is a certain kind of vow no one can make for you. It is the vow of vulnerability. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. This time last year, I produced a podcast called The Season of the Holly King. And I used a piece of music by Kate Rusby where she draws on these ancient myths from these islands about winter being the season of the Holly King and Queen. The Holly Queen breathes her frosts across the land. Not much this year so far. As I look out of my window, it's really drab and grey and wet and muddy. And they overthrow the oak king and queen, the king and queen of summer, and bring their magic of the dark season. Who would have thought at that time last year, in this country we just had a general election, and get Brexit done had won the day, uh, that image of Boris Johnson driving through a, G- a JCB through a wall of white polystyrene bricks and there was a sense of purpose and energy to that part of the body politic and many other people were feeling very bruised. We were looking forward with trepidation, huge trepidation in this country and I'm sure even more so in the United States to the election in November 2020 and what would happen then and what would happen in the run-up to it. So there was already a sense of, of unease and uncertainty and division. And then, of course, we went to Cornwall for New Year and there were some articles on the news about Wuhan prov- province in China and some virus and and that it was quite virulent, and I remember thinking, oh, like Ebola, wow, poor, those poor people over there, were, gosh, I, I wonder how they'll fare. Never dreaming for a moment that it would affect us so directly. And then the year began to unfold, and we all know 
where we find ourselves now. And this year, I found myself having to think more about something that is a Christian religious idea or phenomenon. But I'd like to open it out beyond traditional religion. The idea of Advent. I was asked to put together an exhibition, an online exhibition for the local spirituality centre, Willow Spirituality Centre, about my work uh, in Sheffield for the last three or four years. I've been traipsing, as I've said before, around the city like some um, hobnail artist trying to scrap together found images. For me, that's what I feel I'm about. Um, you get these artists that, that, that go out and find found objects and then make works of art with them. I go out and find images with my camera and conversations and encounters and relationships and try and draw them together into poems and photographs that express something about the city of Sheffield that I live in with a view to opening up the idea of the city and the edge of the city and what lies beyond those edge lands and wastelands and then the countryside beyond. Opening that up by looking at, at the specific city that I've lived in most of my life. And I call the exhibition a Sheffield Advent, Hope and Waiting, Wounds and Stories. And as I was thinking about what to speak of in this podcast, those images um, and that sense of Advent, Advent being a time of waiting and we are in a time of waiting in so many ways. We're waiting for relief. We've seen, apparently, this week, 137,000 people in this country have been vaccinated with the virus uh, vaccine against the virus. And hopefully that will spread equitably across the world. And we're all hoping that this will build up that herd immunity that will allow us to return to a, some semblance of what our lives were like before. The ability to meet and mix and be in crowds and attend events. But we're waiting and we're hoping. And also, as I said on another podcast, I think the virus in Beowulf terms, is Grendel, the monster that Beowulf has to deal with. I think climate change is Grendel's mother, and I think there is a lot of hoping and waiting and, and work for us to do in order for us to know what, how to handle. I'm struggling for words because I think we're all struggling to understand and to know what is ours to do in order to save, or rather, save ourselves. I think the planet will survive us, but will we survive what we're doing is another question. So, I've begun to reflect on the idea of Advent and waiting, and, and this podcast is an exploration, I think, 
of what happens when you consciously pay attention to the waiting, to the hoping, to the wounds that brought you here and to the story that you've been telling and that new story that we're waiting to emerge. The first piece I want to look at in relation to Advent is something of a hymn that has its origins 1200 years ago in monastic life but probably back further to the 8th and 9th centuries or even back to the 6th century. They're called the Great O Antiphons and when I lived a sort of experimental religious life and for two years lived with an established religious community within the Christian, the Catholic tradition, in Advent we would begin to recite these O Antiphons. So Antiphons are uh, responses um, in a liturgical setting and we we would chant these so we're going to listen for a minute to Enya uh, chanting some of these antiphons
haunting, beautiful. In a second, I'll read the words of that. I just wanted to tell you a brief anecdote, just so that you don't uh, read me as saying that unless you're in some religious tradition and the Christian tradition, the Advent is meaningless. This desire to mark the dark time of the year goes way back. I think I mentioned it in the podcast last year. We had Saturnalia, the Roman uh, version of it, but there were all kinds of versions of celebration and devotion and ceremony around the dark time of the year and recognising that it was an introverted time. But a memory came into my mind as I was thinking about this. When I lived on the other side of Sheffield, we got involved in a campaign to save some playing fields and we had public meetings. And there was this old gentleman, Bill Brooks, going around with a cap, collecting money for the campaign. And I started to talk to him and he invited me around to his house for a cup of tea and to talk about the campaign. And he looked the archetypal conservative gentleman white hair, well-dressed, well-spoken. When I had a cup of tea with him and his wife Gladys, I realised that they were lifelong communists. He had been the caravanning and and uh, uh, holiday correspondent for the Morning Star newspaper, which is the communist newspaper in, in, in the UK. And they were fervent believers in the communist ideal. They weren't dewy-eyed, they recognised the terrible things that were done in Russia by Stalin, but they had a belief in the communist manifesto. And they asked me around this time of year if they would, they I would take them out to Derbyshire to meet up with their old Jewish friends from London. Uh, none of them could drive. So I drove them out there and we were having a meal together and they, they asked me to stay and they were all having a glass of wine, and they lifted up their glasses at the beginning of the meal. I almost bowed my head. I thought they were going to say grace. And I thought, well, they're not going to do that. He'd rib me relentlessly about the fairy tale faith that I had. And they all lifted up the glasses and said, here's to the day. The clink glasses carried on, and I sat there feeling stunned. And after a little while and a break in the conversation, I said, what day? And they said, the day, the day of revolution, the day when all wrongs will be righted, when equality will be established, when socialism will have triumphed and the means of production will be owned by all the workers and the workers of the world will unite. And I, my mouth fell open and I said, God, you've got more faith than I have. With my slightly tired old religious faith, I don't have much faith in human beings, and you seem to. And they said, we do. For all the evidence against it, we believe that there is a growing consciousness in human beings that will triumph and create this utopian society. I was gobsmacked. And when I was thinking about Advent, I was thinking about that, that there is this archetypal... Um, movement within us especially when it's hard and difficult i remember back to my mother and father and grandparents talking about the war so my dad was on a ship somewhere in danger throughout the war uh, my mum who was a lot younger than him was a teenager she was nine when the war started 
evacuated for six weeks and brought home by her grandmother because she'd not had a bath for six weeks with the family that she was with and lived through the Blitz in London. And they had that indomitable sense of hope that, that they believed that things would get better. And I used to say to my mum, how did you deal with it? Next door house, was she once told me, was bombed out. People were killed. And I said, how did you cope with that? And she just said, well, we just got on with it. We just got on with it. And that had a cost. That's very clear to me. That, that that way of dealing with collective trauma, because everyone was experiencing it, meant that it got buried uh, in a lot of ways and found its way out later on. But that sense of indomitable hope was powerful. Very, very powerful. Which brings me to the Enya music and the hymn. Here are the words. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. O come thou, rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. O come thou, dayspring, from on high, and cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Dispel the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. O come thou, key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high, and close the path to misery. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, Adonai, Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times did give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come thou, wisdom from on high, and order all things far and nigh. To us the path of knowledge show, and cause us in her ways to go. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. Fill the whole world with heaven's peace. Rejoice. Rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. The first parts are taken from the Hebrew scripture. Emmanuel. The word Emmanuel means God with us, God in our experience. And whatever persuasion you are, what you believe or don't believe in, the idea of some other greater than ourselves dwelling with us is a deep human instinct. So... I invite you, I invite myself 
to hear some of those words. Words like captive, exile, tyranny, hell, the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows. Make safe the way that leads to light. Close the path to misery, the cloud and the majesty and the awe. Bid envy, strife and quarrels cease. Fill the whole world with heaven's peace. They're words worth meditating on. Our world at the moment is held captive. We are in exile from each other, trapped in our own homes. There's a tyranny. In fact, there are many tyrannies. But I experience a tyranny of, of, of what has come to be coined as fake news. The tyranny of the fact that people would rather believe what they read on Facebook than what an expert might tell them. That they'd rather not have a vaccination and believe something outlandish about it than... I mean, I remember I had the TB jab. I had, the, I didn't have the measles inoculation because there wasn't one when I was a kid and I was really ill with measles. Um, I had the smallpox vac vaccination. Smallpox was a virulent, terrible disease. Polio, the sugar lump. My dad had a stroke and was in Lodgemore Hospital in Sheffield, which also was home to the polio victims that lived in iron lungs. Great big contraptions that kept them alive, but they couldn't move in. These discoveries that we've made as human beings have kept us safe. Why would we not want to be kept safe? So the tyranny of alternative facts, the word hell, that I remember when my anxiety was awful. My son has had a, a little bit of a bout of it lately. And I remember that feeling of waking up and just thinking, when, oh, when is this going to lift? And thinking, if it didn't, I can't imagine wanting to carry on much longer like this. There are many versions of hell. Interestingly, in the overquoted Dante, uh, the beginning of Dante's, in the midst of this life, the, the beginning of the Divine Comedy, in the midst of this life, in the midst of this life, I found myself in a darkened forest and the way had become obscure. And he enters the gates of hell, the underworld. In the midst of this life, that's when we encounter what Jesus called Gehenna, the the, the, I suppose, the product of captivity, exile and tyranny. The gloomy clouds of night, death's dark shadows. Please make safe the way and close the path to misery. It is our yearning as human beings to have these things happen and to be part of making them happen. And the cloud and the majesty and the awe as I've got older, 
certain things fill me with intense pleasure. I remember David Hockney talking about just looking at the world gave him intense pleasure through his eyes. And I think I'm beginning to understand it. So walking the dog at this time of year, you get these early sunsets and and you witness them. And they're always different and they're a glorious uh, oil painting of colours. And I take pictures of them and post them on Instagram and people respond. I, I, my neighbour said to me, I want to live in the valley you live in. It seems a lot more beautiful than the one I do. And it isn't. It's the same valley. It's it, uh, And it's no thanks. You know, I'm no great shakes. I just have had the chance by walking and we've all had chance to do that, uh, to get out, uh, hopefully, in this pandemic. To see the world around us and somehow it opens the path of knowledge and it creates that uh, all peoples in one heart and mind. If it's done anything, I really hope, even to the small thing of clapping for the NHS, that it's, it's created a unity among us. Bid envy, strife and quarrels cease. Fill the whole world with heaven's peace. The heavens were so lucky if, if if there's not too much artificial light and it's a clear night, especially at this time of year, to see the heavens above us and that incredible panoply of stars. And it, it has an effect on me. I put my chickens to bed every night around 11 and I look up when it's a clear night and just feel the immensity of what's out there and hold that hold it and it's somehow the holding of difficult things that that creates the rejoicing in the Enya version, she sings it in Latin, Gaude, Gaude. Rejoice, rejoice, because God with us is coming closer. Emmanuel is coming closer. That which is greater than us, our incredible ability so quickly to find a vaccine, the sum of all our parts is greater than than our individual effort that is coming closer coming closer to us poetry anxiety and vulnerability this is the anxious poets podcast advent then is something about <clears throat> this learning to rejoice to hope and to wait to be with difficult things in order to feel the advent of change and a kind of iconic figure in my life for this among other things is Francis of Assisi and I've just written this piece it's called The Crib at Greccio Francis was credited with popularising the crib scene. 
he'd been in the Holy Land not long before and he'd seen that the original stable was really a cave um, in Bethlehem, the place where it's venerated. And so he went to Greccio and he had a, a, a friend there, a military man called John, uh, who had a cave on his land. So he asked that straw be put in the cave and he brought in a donkey and a cow reflecting on the Isaiah in the in the Hebrew scriptures that that Emmanuel would be accompanied by the ox and the ass, humble beasts. And he created a nest for what in Christian theology is called the incarnation. Carne being flesh, carnivale, the farewell to flesh. Um, so he created this place where what he saw as God in Jesus would take flesh, would become one of us. And for him, this was the time, not the cross, when humanity was saved, that word salvation. I think today we might say transformed or transfigured or some in some way our experience is overturned and we find that things are better than we think they are and that we our lives are okay it's it's okay to be who we are to accept the world as we find it reality as it is that it's imbued with something more something greater Francis was so excited by this that he invited all the townspeople of Greccio to come with lights, with candles and torches, and they illuminated this cave. In one version of the story, he brought a man and a woman and a baby and sat them in this. Um, in Bonaventure, who, who was the person who chronicled a lot of Francis's life after he died, um, he has him carving a wooden figure of the baby and placing it in the in the crib but then um lifting this this figure and speaking with such love and tenderness that the people there including john felt that they'd seen the baby come alive such was francis's desire for this change, for this transformation. And so here's the piece. The crib at Greccio. One witness among the crowd that gathered for this event reported that Francis included a carved doll which cried tears of joy and seemed to be awakened from sleep when the blessed father Francis embraced him in both arms. That's a quote from Bonaventure. He led them up the stony path at dusk on Christmas Eve. He asked them to bring light, so with sticks dipped in pitch and all manner of stubby candles, they followed him to the cave. The lights gathered into a luminescence around the place that reminded him of Bethlehem, an earthen womb, a rocky aperture, a threshold of heaven. He had found a donkey cross-backed and a cow, udder full and calf needy, 
and with straw he coaxed them to settle into that cave. And for the pallet of golden forage, his hands long-fingered and dexterous had carved a babe to incarnate in wood the long-awaited. John of Greccio, whose cave it was, witnessed the scene and the tears of Francis that carried him back to that uncertain birth under imperial servitude. And he was sure the little carven fingers uncurled, the chiselled eyes blinked back the smoke from the lights, and beheld again the startled wonder in villains to liege lords. Francis finally spoke of the terrifying helplessness that was undertaken to show that each of us, womb-born, is a doorway to divinity. He lifted the sleeping child, who stirred miraculously, cribbed in the tender love of one who could see what thrones and dominations occlude. Francis finally spoke of the terrifying helplessness that was undertaken to show that each of us, womb-born, is a doorway to divinity. He lifted the sleeping child who stirred miraculously, cribbed in the tender love of one who could see what thrones and dominations occlude. Somehow, and I feel incredibly moved by this, Francis and, and men and women like him see what thrones and dominations occlude. They see through power, celebrity, aggrandizement, narcissism, that we all carry about with us to something deeper that each of us womb born is a doorway to divinity in this final part of the podcast i want to introduce a word enantiodromia in ancient greek enantios meant opposite and dromos meant running course and jung coined this word strongly he says this, in Entriodromia, literally running counter to, referring to the emergence of the unconscious opposite in the course of time. This characteristic phenomenon practically always occurs when an extreme one-sided tendency dominates conscious life. In time, an equally powerful counterposition is built up, which first inhibits the conscious performance and subsequently breaks through the conscious control. In a second, I'm going to read a story that, that gives a, a, a clear account of this phenomenon. Just by way of introduction to say that I, I always, in my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, early 50s, saw myself and cultured the persona and other people experienced me as very calm, very measured, very... Uh, unflappable 
when my daughter Lara was born and was in hospital for six months, I was the one that stayed calm, that that really tried to hold things together in my mind. And my wife was much more anxious, so that made me play that card even more powerfully. That, yeah, I'm doing okay, let's trust God, let's trust the universe, or whatever. And in my working life, I did lots of consultancy work and, and helped groups with crises. And um, in the Men's Rights of Passage, I would hold the team and the 60 or 70 men that were on it with this sense that I could embrace them all in this calm, leading them through the process with grace. Um, however, as he says, in time an equally powerful counterposition is built up, which first inhibits the conscious performance. So for me, that was a massive outbreak of anxiety. And in a kind of synchronicity, my dog, I've just seen him wandering around the drive, so I've brought him into the room where I'm recording this. He's sitting on the chair. He's like the physical incarnation of my anxiety. He's sitting there now with his ears pricked up, looking outside, absolutely on point. When you go for a walk with him, he's constantly anxious. If there was a soundtrack, it'd be, oh my goodness, there's another dog there. I don't like other dogs. I saw another dog here before. Oh my goodness. He's just like anxiety on speed. And um, this is what was going into... Or, or, or that was the counter position that was building up. All of this not being anxious, I, I was storing it all in my body and it came screaming out one day. My therapist said to me, this could be the best thing that's ever happened to you. I thought she was off a trolley. Um, it felt like the worst thing that had ever happened to me. And as, as he says, it broke through my conscious control so much so that I couldn't do the work that I was doing anymore. And I went up to the next rites of passage just as an observer, but I was a kind of quivering wreck. I'd been having a dream that I went down into the basement in our house, which has got a funny little vaulted chapel. We've turned it into a chapel. It was a cellar. And I'd go in there and there was a white door and I knew there was something awful behind it. And I'd stand there with a crucifix demanding it go away in the dream. And my therapist said, no, no, we need to open that door. Well, again, I thought she was losing her marbles. But she said, you need to do this imaginatively. So I'd been to the uh, Royal Academy a few weeks before, and there was a twice life-size statue made of black plastic bin bags of this lowering giant figure that looked like it was either lowering over you or chasing you. And I thought, that is it. That is the figure that's behind that door. I'm sure of it. And and I told her, and she said, well, if you can find a time to do some active imagination and, and that, that figure will name you and you will name it. So when I was up in Scotland at this place called The Beale, I knew there was a wood and at twilight it had the right feel to it. So I went in there and sat on a log and looked and imagined this figure opposite me. And I said, with all the courage that I could muster, and I found this quite a scary thing to do. I, I said, name me 
who do you say that I am? And and in my imagination, this figure said, you are Dream Boy. And I immediately called him Shadow Man. And we had a dialogue and I put it into a story and this is the story. It's called Dream Boy and Shadow Man. And it begins with a quote from uh, a book called Topographies of the Sacred by Kate Rigby. Indeed, in, in tying the promise of human well-being to the possibility of universal intelligibility, enlightenment rationalism arguably renders the unknown whether without or within, even more terrifying. Once upon a time, some 50 years ago, in the dark clearing of a young boy's interior forest, two figures emerged that would live within him for the rest of his life. One would remain for many years, mainly in that forest, and the other, though he boasted he had made many journeys along the winding and labyrinthine forest paths, remained scared of the darkness between the trees. It took three years past his half-century tally of years for the man to find the name and character of these two figures, and only then on account of his absolute desperation. He had to enter the interior forest by mirroring its darkness in a real forest. In the gloaming of a Scottish evening, he sat on a log, with a dark ebony carved man's head that his mother had brought back from Sierra Leone, perched on a wooden stump. In that twilight place, where inner and outer meet, these two gave each other names. You are Dream Boy, said the dark one, and you are Shadow Man, said the fair one. As the man stood in the twilight, he sensed the two figures moving in and out of his consciousness, and that they had always been present, even when he was unaware of them. Dream Boy was bright-eyed, youthful, blonde-haired, always focused on the horizon, desperate for new stories, stories of other lands, speaking animals, cloak-clad wizards, especially stories that came to him in the dark of winter and carried him away from the humdrum. He inherited this from his book-reading parents, especially his mother, who read to him when he was little. The dream boy had accompanied him into adulthood and was always keen on new starts, tougher tasks, and capturing the limelight. Dream boy revelled in the esteem of others and stressed the need for a calm and collected approach to everything. Though the man's father had died when he was a boy, the cathartic darkness of grief had never been appealing to dream boy. Instead, he looked for the next story to escape into, the next adventure, the next horizon to aim for. Shadow Man was a different character altogether. He appeared for many years only in the man's dreams. Father Christmas in his sleep realms became dark and malevolent, a figure to flee from. Huge gloomy animals stalked him, giants, great giants that lowered over him. The giant haystack from ITV's Saturday Wrestling, an alpha male gorilla called Guy from the London Zoo of his childhood, escaped and rampaging. Sometimes Shadow Man took over in his dreams, put a sword in his hand, and they rampaged through Sheffield's town centre, up the escalator in the hole in the road, beheading enemies, and recently, in a recurring dream of the basement of his house behind a white door, a screaming demon. But never before had he sensed the outline of Shadow Man in waking life. 
He had grown during all those years in the forest. He was now over seven feet tall, with blurred edges. Flying buttresses of black rags came off his limbs, and his features were indistinct, as they were so jet black. But what was discernible was a deep, unilluminated sadness. The other factor, and this was new to the man, was that there existed between Shadow Man and Dream Boy a cord, umbilical and highly elastic. This meant that where one went, the other would inevitably follow. As the man had grown to maturity, Dream Boy grew up too, in his own way. Though he retained all that youthful verve and desire to be seen as good and wise and competent, an exemplar to be followed, and the man acted on this part, oblivious of Shadow Man, and he was ashamed if any of the forest darkness leaked out into the waking world and disowned it as quickly as possible, finding a way to blame it on others. He numbed himself to any feelings that spoke of the stretching sensation that the umbilical and elastic connection engendered in him. He was renowned for his calm and placid demeanour. He was only ever fleetingly aware of his discomforts and ambiguities, his angsts and fears. And because they did not fit his carefully curated persona, he allowed them to pass, with all their toxicity, down the cord and into the shadow man, like intravenous perdition in liquid form. The forest, as a consequence, became darker and darker and more and more alarming. Though it was becoming darker and more frightening, Shadow Man still preferred to dwell in the interior forest, and the man and his dream boy did not even suspect the presence of a realm so vast and so dark. The strain on the cord was growing year by year, month by month, and day by day. In the dream world, Shadow Man was forced more and more to make his presence felt, the man would wake up shouting his imprecations at the white and, and sepulchre-like door in his basement, holding crucifixes up to the aperture, through which he thought some ferocious demonic enemy was about to storm. Even this did not persuade the man and his dream boy to investigate this interior forest. So Shadow Man did what any decent creature of the unconscious would, he allowed the accumulated tension from all those years to launch himself into the conscious life of the man and to make himself known in the waking world. His presence took the form of an overwhelming and undeniable sense of utter dread. It appeared one morning and the man was totally unmanned by it. The dream boy clinging to whatever apron strings or crumb of comfort was available. The rational part of the man and he was quite intelligent, constantly scanned himself for the cause of this awful sensation. He attributed it to all manner of things, some illness or worse. He even began to suspect his own sanity. Shadow Man was becoming bold as he realised that his presence was finally, finally having an effect. The man began asking himself some searching questions and even sought out a healer who interrogated him relentlessly and told him that this was a golden opportunity to step into the fullness of his life. She made him record his dreams and recount them to her, and of course, as any healer worth her salt would do, she immediately discerned the footprints of an unfriended shadow in his life. 
She was particularly fascinated by the basement door and what lay behind, and so sent him into the forest in Scotland that reflected his inner forest. And there, here, he saw clearly for the first time Shadow Man and Dream Boy. She intuited that behind that sepulchre-like door was not a demon, but a lost shadow. The first meeting with Shadow Man in waking life caused an intense feeling of sadness in the man's heart. He realised that his blind adherence to Dream Boy had meant that this poor figure standing before him was draped in the funereal shrouds of all his own banished darkness, the darkness that Dream Boy had no time for or interest in. He sensed, in fact, that right now Dreamboy was hiding behind him, clinging rigidly to his coattails. The man wept openly at the callousness of his own actions. He stared up at the colossal figure and found, to his surprise, that the giant, too, was weeping. Dreamboy peered around the man's torso and timidly stepped toward the giant. The man handed him a cloth from out of his pocket, and Dream Boy reached up toward the immense dark face leaning down towards him and began to wipe away tear after tear after tear. And immediately began to wipe away tear after tear after tear. In this advent we have the chance in this year of years to explore those shadows in those interior forests both as individuals and as communities I'm going to finish with a piece called Toft's Lane which is part of my befriending of this dark time I walk every day in the valley and I found this great quote from Laurie Lee who wrote Cider with Rosie about the Slad Valley where he grew up in Somerset Living down there was like living in a bean pod. One could see nothing but the bed one lay in. That's what living in this valley is like for me. And with lockdown, one can see nothing but the bed one lies in. And that's not always been easy. But this particular poem recounts a day of a walk where I met my neighbours who have um, who live in one of the cottages up the road and have bought the one next door from there's an old lady who died there and she they've bought this cottage and they're renovating them and they've got two little girls grace and edie and grace is uh, about seven and she's just started school so this piece is is about the hope if advent is a time of hope and waiting we've talked about waiting of wounds and stories it's it's definitely about hope Toff's Lane. The row of cottages nestles into the crag, in the same way as the child above me shapes her frame to her mother's hip. The buildings look down on me as mother and daughter greet me and my neck cricks up to take in kind faces and sashed windows. The dry stone wall, like a breakwater, keeps the cottages from spilling into the road my dog and I trudge daily. Grace's young voice lists by chewing an apple, is crammed with her new term, 
Mrs. Green is young, and there is also old Mrs. Jameson, and on Wednesday, after lunch, Miss Bankstone for story time. The daughter's garrulousness emerges from maternal skirts, cultivating the affinity of our gateside chats like tea in cups. To Grace's chagrin, grown-up talk begins. Her father, from a top window, his big plans that will eat their weekends as the dog's lead strains against the current of our walk. Both this woman's grands lived in the valley, leaving a long drift of ancestral memory, from the planting of a line of lime trees to the paddling of pools, from old Matty's well to the quarry in Rivling Glen. I tell her of a photo I found of our house from early last century, walls daubed with whitewash advertising teas and sweets for the Whitwalkers, a boy and a girl at the door in their Sunday best. The dog and Grace are restless, pulling us away from the richness of stretching our roots into this mill-streamed valley, this green backwater where we ply our subsistence, as it has always been, back into the horse-drawn past. In the last pass that a good chat entails, we share that the virus made us walk the valley more, traverse more of its paths and tracks, fall more for its green and shabby charms. We have both seen the barn owl as it swoops down Coppice Lane, outspread over us, cream and brown, at once lonely and at home, and the bat's erratic scattering progress as the dusk catches us, unlatched and opened. And we find we are breathing in time with the valley, finding green hope in its sheltering edges, nestling in like a child to its mother's hip. Nestling in like a child to its mother's hip. That's my hope that we will find we are breathing in time with all the things around us that we will have found the relegated opposite the shadow man the shadow woman and will befriend them and we'll find we are breathing in time with the valley finding green hope in its sheltering edges nestling in nestling in nestling in like a child to its mother's hip so i wish you a merry christmas and a happy new year 2021 is going to be a challenge i'm quite sure but i hope through understanding our own enantiodromia our befriending of our opposites that we can nestle into our lives like a child to its mother's hip, like that child in Francis's nestling crib that came alive in the helplessness and vulnerability of human life that is cradled by others and finds courage and transformation 
and growth and change and love over all above all and under all love so go well i'm really grateful to all who listen to this the snippets of this odd conversation come back to me at different times and, and make me feel like it's a conversation worth having if you want more information about my exhibition the link will be on the info about this this podcast um, go well and see you in 2021 where maybe at some point we'll actually be able to meet and shake hands and embrace once more cheerio Advent blessing The winter is strong and dark You are in the depths of its silence Holding your breath in case you break what needs to be held with reverence The winter is long and cold You are in the grip of its frosts Its mists and sluicing rains let old thoughts fall from you like the final leaves of autumn. The winter is stripping and dying. You have no immunity from this season. It is a great teacher. Try not to shy away from the lessons that ache like chillblains. The winter is grafting and preparing. You are part of that story willing to be stripped back, to be exposed and vulnerable, to experience the new seeds de-husking. The winter will loosen and give way. You may walk into spring and know the joy of the newly born, fresh and excited by possibility. May you not leave this season until you are ready to allow the truth that you have found to blossom under green trees and flow from you like a breath from the green chapels and the light from the trees' regal cathedrals. Poetry, Anxiety and Vulnerability this is the Anxious Poets Podcast.